What do I do when things get hot? We're going to look at Daniel chapter 3 this morning. And we're going to look at a, a, a point in time. It's, like I said, it's 120 years before Esther. It's, it's, it's not the same regime but, uh, uh, because there's been a, there, was a, there was a mixed uh, change in there. But a lot of the same things are going on, very similar things. And, uh, and as we look at this, what we're going to talk about is, what I want to talk about is what happens when the rug gets pulled out, on, out from under you in life? What happens when your world gets rocked? Because it's going to happen sooner or later in all of our lives. What do you do then? There is a book out. It's been out for quite a while. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a book called Worst Case Scenarios. And what it does is it goes through these incredibly improbable things that could happen to you, but they could be horrible. Like one of them is, what if you're in a skyscraper and the cable snaps on your elevator? What do you do as you're falling? And I'm not even going to tell you. But they have one, what do you do if you're accidentally locked in the lion's cage at the zoo? And they have like six steps that you go through. You know, at one point they say, you gently try to move. And they talk about moving very slowly and carefully, trying not to attract attention. And then at the end they say, probably though you will attract the, the lion's attention. So the number one thing you should do if you've attracted the lion's attention is start screaming your head off for help. That's it, right? There's no great, uh, there's no great. They had one, what do you do if you have an anaconda, you know, and you wait till it's swallowed you part way, then you pull out your knife and come up high in the, and get the brain and cut the brain. And the last step is make sure you have your knife with you. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you think about, you know, I don't know. But anyways, that's worst case scenarios. So you could be ready when there's a crisis. That's the idea. The idea is how will you react when there's a crisis? And we're going to look at this remarkable story out of the book of Daniel. And we're just going to kind of walk through this text. Because a lot of people, you know, you, you, may, you may hear about this story if, if you went to church when you were a child. And there's a te- kind of a tendency to think of it as a, just a childish thing. But it's a real story. These are historical characters. And so I want us to see what we can learn from them. Now, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7. It's on your sheet. And then we end with the verse 7 here on the screen. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and nine feet, 90 feet high and nine feet wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Then the herald proclaimed loudly, This is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of the gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You're going to notice something if you ever read this, if you ever read it before. He mentions, he mentions the instruments a number of times. Part of that is to build the effect here. Part of it is to get the idea there's all this kind of pressure to do what the king wants you to do. You know, in our lives, a lot of times, there can be tremendous pressure. I had a guy in my office years ago, and he just said, I think my job's on the line over this. My boss wants me to lie. What do you think I should do? You know, that's a hard thing when somebody says that to you. It's a hard thing to look somebody in the face and say, tell the truth and lose your job. You got three kids. This could be really devastating for you. 
That's a hard thing. And so we talked about it because I didn't want to tell him what to do. I wanted him to come to the conclusion himself because I have no right to interfere in his life in that way necessarily. I wanted him. And so we talked about it and we prayed about it over a number of weeks. And God worked in his life and God brought him to a place and God rescued him in the midst of this difficulty. But the thing was, it wasn't without some really terrible times. He did lose his job. God, he got another job and it worked out better in some ways. But he went through a difficult time because of his decision that he made. And so here, there's all this pressure and the pressure builds because what, is the, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He makes this beautiful idol. It's like he's involved in the arts. He says, look how beautiful this is. Don't fight me on this. There's, gonna be, there's this beautiful statue, incredibly, inc- incredibly uh, expensive. And there's all this music, this beautiful music with all these instruments. And Babylon has taken over many cultures and many countries and many peoples. And Nebuchadnezzar wants unity. So he wants everyone to understand he's the man. And forcing everybody to worship him will, in, will reinforce his prestige and his power in their midst. And he does a lot to motivate them to do this. And just so they don't think, you know, well, there's all this positive reinforcement, he brings in some negative reinforcement too. He tells them, whoever doesn't bow is going to be thrown in the furnace. You're going to get, you don't bow, you lose your life in a horrific way. Archaeologists have found the great Babylonian smelting furnaces that probably this is talking about. They're huge. They're huge. And so now picture this moment. There's this, all these people. There's all these leaders. And this beautiful moving music starts. And the people are highly motivated to do as Nebuchadnezzar intended in positive ways and negative ways, right? And literally in verse 7, the text says, as soon as they were hearing, they were falling. It was like, who could hit the ground first to impress Nebuchadnezzar with how devoted they are? And in an act that people must have thought was either monumental courage or suicidal folly, three young men are still standing. They don't bow their heads. They don't bend their knee. And we see what happens as we continue to read. These people come to him. It says in verse 8, and we'll get, it's not on the screen, it's on your paper there. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a degree. And then he goes through the, all the things about the degree. And then he says, they say in verse 12, but there are some Jews who have set over the affairs, who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So what do we have here? We have some enemies who, have, who, have, who, who are feeling. They're envious. They're jealous. They don't like it. It's these three young men have risen through the ranks. These men have prime positions. They're in the province of Babylon. The province of Babylon is the richest province of the empire. And these guys have risen up in it. And other people are looking at them, and they're envious. The, uh, the word in the Hebrew, it says some astrologers. It's a compound word. The word uh, is... Um, Gubrin, which means race, and then Kashte, which means Chaldean. And, and what they're saying is there's some men, that, and they're pure race, the, the race that's in charge, the race of Nebuchadnezzar. They're, we're pure Chaldeans. And then what do they say? At the end of verse 12, they say some Jews, which is Gubrin, race, Yehuda, Jews. 
And what do we see now? We see something that's going to be reflected in Esther with Mordecai, because he's a Jew. He's a Jew. We see Haman saying, as, as, when I see that man, Haman the Jew, he makes me so angry. His, his rage overflows. So we have an ethnic slur that's being used here. This is anti-Semitism. We look at that, and, and I think for most of us, hopefully all of us, we're like, man, that's terrible. But it's going on today. It still goes on today. Oh, we've learned to change the slurs a little bit, so they're not quite so obvious. But it still goes on even today. And so we have these guys that people hate because of their position and because they're Jews. They're people of the covenant, and they hate them. And they're under them, and so they're consumed. And so they denounce them. It's an interesting thing sometimes as you look up some of these words. The word denounced actually, which is a word for gossip or for slander, it means, it, it literally means to eat them. It comes from the word to eat. And it means they're tearing them apart. In Proverbs chapter 6, God gives his list of the worst sins. You know, if we're willing to think about the, the, the things that God loves and really pay attention to them, we really ought to pay attention to the things that God says, this, I hate this, I hate this. And, and it seems to build in a crescendo till it hits number seven. And number seven on his list of things he hates is people who stir up dissension among believers. God says, that I really hate. People who talk bad about other people, especially other believers. God says, I really hate that. That's kind of a spiritual cannibalism coming off that word. The word karats, which means to, that they use for denounce, means to eat them, eat pieces of them. And so in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And he says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? He says, When you hear all those instruments playing, you don't bow. He says, You have to. If you're ready to fall down and worship I made, the, the image I made, very good. It's all forgiven. But if you don't worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, I want to think about that statement for a little bit. Think about that. He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God? He says, look at those furnaces. They're incredible. They're incredibly hot. Who's going to save you from that? If I throw you in, who's going to save you from that? Now, this fall, what God, will, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This falls into the category of a rhetorical question. When the speaker asks a rhetorical question, he's not looking for more information. He's just making a point. You know what I mean? You ever get that? One of my parents' favorite rhetorical questions to me was, do you want a spanking? Okay, they weren't asking for information. This was not an invitation to discuss, right? It's just a rhetorical question. They're just making a point. Because no kid would ever say, well, you know, I was thinking that out. I want to go out and play, but I'm thinking maybe this would be better for my character. <laughs> go ahead, right? That never happens, right? No kid, because it's a rhetorical question. They're not asking. I never said to my dad, 
Hmm, that's a thought-provoking question. I never said that, right? So when Nebuchadnezzar says what God will deliver you, he's not looking for information. He's just reminding them they have no choice. But to his surprise, these three guys don't take it as a rhetorical question. They take it as an, informa- as, as, an, as an invitation to have a discussion. And so what do they do? Because here's the thing. When you have, a f- when you have faith in a big God who oversees the affairs of all mankind, all of a sudden you have options where everyone else thinks you don't have options. So if you look at 16 and 17 here. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. I'm sure he was surprised. They replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. And so what are they saying here? It's very imp- they're saying the God we serve is able. This is an important point. They're saying our God is able. He's not a myth. He's not an abstraction. He's not a lovely idea. He's not like that statue you just erected of yourself. They're saying he's real. He stands above space and time and history. He's in the process of making himself known to the peoples of the earth. He is able to save us. The God we serve is able. When you realize that that is true, you are never without options. You are never backed into a corner. You do not have to live in defeat because our God is able. His arms are strong. When I was a kid, I used to get so excited when my dad would come home. My dad was a whistler and, uh, and uh, he, he, uh, a couple times he was able to walk to work just by just how things were, happened. He was able to walk to work, and I would hear, uh, you know, we lived in this house, didn't have air conditioning or anything, so the windows are always open during most of the year, and I would hear this whistling, and I knew it was my dad, and I would get so excited. So, I, so I'd run to the top of the stairs, and our, our, our front door opened, and there was the stairs, you know, and I'd start coming down the stairs, and when the door would open, I'd start running, and I might have been on the sixth step. It didn't matter. I just jumped, right, and my dad would just catch me in his arms. And I said, daddy home. And he'd catch me and he said, hey, big boy. And he'd swing me around, right? And then one day, I mean, I guess he was too afraid to have to say it. My mom came to me and she said, Bobby, you can't jump in your daddy's arms anymore. His arms aren't that strong. He can't catch you like he used to. And I said, why not? And she says, well, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he does love you. And he wants to be there for you, but you're 23. (laughs) He's 53 years old now, and he just can't catch you anymore. That was a devastating time. Every pair of arms is going to wear out someday. Every human being is going to find their limit. Every one of us, there will be an enemy we can't overcome. There will be a problem. There will be a diagnosis. There will be a disease. There will be a loss. There will be age. There will be death. But God's arms have not lost their strength. And so we live in faith, not in fear. Because no matter what the problem is that we face, no matter how deep the discouragement, no matter how rough the emotions that we struggle with, we serve a God who is able He's able, and this is good news. 
because he's able to reconcile problems between people. I've seen it happen. He's able to liberate people from horrible addictions. I've seen him do it. He's able to forgive the darkest sins and make somebody into a new creature. He is able to provide for the greatest need. He's able to guide with supernatural wisdom. The God we serve is able to inspire spiritual gifting that is beyond human ability. The God we serve is able to soften the hardest heart that we may know. And everybody in this room, simply by your mere physical existence, by your physical and spiritual hunger, by the fact that you're here, you are, you are pointing to a truth. Our God is able. We have a God who is able. And this is pretty great, great stuff that we're talking about. It's a pretty awesome thing that we're talking about. Our God is able. And so when you run into a problem, whether it's dealing with a person that's giving you a difficult time or when things aren't going your way or when you start to worry about the things that are coming, you've got to remind yourself our God is able. The reason these three men lived in faith, not in fear, is because they believed that their God was able. And so their focus is not on the size of the furnace or the power of Nebuchadnezzar. Their focus is on God. Our God is able. And they didn't stop there. Because then they make a, st- they make a statement of devotion that will take your breath away. Because one thing we need, to, we need to stop and think about these three men. They're not people with a superficial faith that has emerged because their lives have become easy. They would have prayed for a long time when Babylon was rising as a world power and their families would have prayed for a long time that that Babylon would not threaten their country of Israel. And it did. And they would have prayed that Nebuchadnezzar would not have been able to conquer Jerusalem, but he did. And they would have prayed when Babylon took some of the best and the brightest with them that they would not be among those, but they were. And then they heard that one day this decree where everybody has to fall down in front of an idol and they would have prayed that they wouldn't have had to do this, that maybe Nebuchadnezzar would repent, repent, but he didn't. And they would have prayed that that decree would not have been enforced, but it was. And they would have prayed that no one would have noticed that they didn't stand. Can you imagine? I can imagine that. I can imagine when they said gather together, they're like, well, let's find a corner and stand in the corner and maybe nobody will notice us. And then when everybody prays, drop over like this, like we weren't paying attention and didn't hear the music. They're trying to think. I can imagine them praying, God, in some way, don't let anyone notice us. But they did. Not one of those prayers got answered the way they wanted it to be answered. And I'm sure there was disappointment, and this is a nightmare for their lives. I can imagine how they felt. This is their worst case scenario. They're staring at Nebuchadnezzar eye to eye. He's offering them a way out. Just do this. We see in the early church when, when, when some of the um, great persecutions happened, the Romans, the Romans were great record keepers. They kept records of so many things. We know so much because of that. And they kept records sometimes of what people said when they killed them. An old bishop, they said, just curse Jesus. And he said, he has been good to me all these years. How can I turn on him now? And he was killed. And so these men are looking that straight in the face. Every door of escape seems to be shut. 
And they've said, okay, this is our testimony. You can throw us in, but we believe our God is able to save us. And then they said, but even if he doesn't, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's faith. To say that when your life is on the line is faith. They're trusting God to take care of them even if the worst happens. And how does a person get like this? How does a person get to where they can say, you know what, we will march to our death singing songs of praise of the only God we will ever serve. And what do we see there? Well, we saw our God is able, now we see their commitment. This is a strong truth. God is able to do anything. He still can. He still does miracles. He still heals. These things still happen, but not every time, not even most of the time. I think of Job in the middle of his intense suffering. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Esther, we just looked at this. I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She said, I want you guys to fast and pray for three days, and I'm going to fast and pray, and I'm going to set up a plan for God to come through, but if God doesn't come through, I die. It's worth it. You know, a lot of us are tempted to pray, God, if you'll grant this one request, if you give me what I really want, I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. I'll tell everybody about you. But here's the thing. Will you get to the point where even if he does not, you have that kind of faith? Or maybe your finances are going really bad and you're way over your head, and our God is able to provide, but even if he does not, or there's a job that's not turning out the way you want it to, or maybe you're looking for a job and not finding it. Our God is able to make a way, but even if he does not, or maybe your health is in a precarious situation, our God is able to heal. But even if he does not, maybe you wrestle with depression that is so bad some mornings you don't even know if it's worth getting out of bed. Our God is able to lift depression. Our God is able to bring joy in difficult circumstances. But even if he does not, even if I have to wrestle with this for the rest of my life, God, I will serve you. I will serve you. Maybe you have a child who's a long, long ways from home. Our father specializes in bringing prodigal sons and prodigal daughters home, putting families together. But even if he does not, I will serve you. You know, a lot of sermons, I've noticed this. I listened to some of them. Oh, I've just got to stop crying. I hear people speak on this, and one of the things is that the even if he does not side of the equation is not really popular. It's not something that pastors spend a lot of time talking about. But you know what? If we're going to be real and we're going to be honest, we have to talk about this because this is life. He says, ultimately, you will fall in my arms. Ultimately, there will be a day when you will open your eyes and stare straight into my face. We will see him face to face. But in the meantime, 
In the meantime, all we know is he will walk with us. We know he weeps with us. Somebody asked me, where was God when those three boys died in that car wreck in your county? I said, God was right there and he was crying. His heart was broken. He does not enjoy. He does not make light. Because of Jesus, he knows. He knows what death is. He knows what it is for a family member to die. He knows that feeling. And so we have to deal with these truths. We have to deal with this. Because the truth is, oftentimes what we are like is we say, when my day goes well, when I get good news, when circumstances are right, then I have joy and I'll serve God and I'm motivated to tell other people and I tend to be more generous with my time and my money. But when things are not going well, when I get a little too close to the furnace, I begin to bend my knee to another God, a God called self-absorption or self-preoccupation or self-serving or self-pity because in, in the end, the great big idol is always me. It's always me. It's always when I decide this is too rough, I'm not going there. It's because I don't want to. It's because I don't want to feel that. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to be involved with that. I don't want to have that struggle. It's all about me. And that's where our idol is. And these men, they know what they're saying. They're saying our God is able and he can rescue us. But we want you to know if he doesn't, we're not bending our knees to your God. We still believe he is the God. He will catch us. You know, and they say this to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's deeply moved by their devotion, and he sets them free, and he proclaims religious liberty throughout the land. Nope, he doesn't. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. You know, and, and this is kind of for show for everybody who's watching to see how angry he is. And it is kind of a unique thing. It's an interesting thing, I guess. We've talked about in the book of Esther, people who have absolute power. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And here we see it again. We see this. People who have tremendous amount of power oftentimes are prone to fits of rages, prone to anger that gets out of hand. And so he says heat up the furnaces seven times as if that's going to kill them any better, right? So he does this because he's just angry. And they're facing this where a single word could spare their lives and they won't say it. You know, I'm a million miles away from a furnace like that. But in many parts of the world, there are believers who are meeting this morning who are facing this. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing this. And it's interesting to see that all over the world there are people who are saying, I will not bend the knee. I will not bend the knee. So they're thrown in, and I'm kind of, there's, it's a long story, but they're thrown in. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of, looks like a son of the gods. And so this furnace, which was going to be the end of their lives, turns out to be the greatest thing they've ever experienced because they met God there. They were hoping to be delivered from the furnace, and it turns out God delivered them in the furnace. And this is another truth, I think, 
that we need to hold on to. Our God is able. Secondly, I, I, I see the truth and the heaviness of their com- commitment. And I see that sometimes God meets us in the furnace. In the furnace. In a place where full devotion can sometimes lead a follower of Christ that is frightening and dangerous and even painful. And it turns out that's where Jesus is. And so it not, may not be the place that you want to go, but it turns out in there, in the ultimate scheme of things, that's the safest place for them in the whole world. And I wonder, you know, I think about this, I wonder as they went through their lives, if they ever thought back to this day and go, man, I'm glad I didn't bend my knee. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine them getting together like they have furnace reunions or something like all these groups have? They have these reunions, and it's only three of them, right? So it's not a big reunion, but they get back together. Maybe they invite some friends or whatever, and they say, dude, if we'd have knuckled under, we'd have missed the greatest thing that has ever happened in our lives, in our lives. The greatest thing we would have ever experienced in our lives, we would have missed it. They would have missed the fourth man in the furnace, who I believe is Jesus. And this is an amazing thing about our God. Jesus prayed in the garden that his father would spare him the suffering of the cross. We all are kind of familiar with that. That he'd be spared being executed by the authorities who didn't want him to disrupt their empire, the Roman Empire, which is the Babylonian Empire of Jesus' day, right? He prayed he would be spared the pain of carrying our sins, which I can't even conceive of that pain. And so he prayed, Father, I want to be spared this, but even if I'm not, let this cup pass from me, but even if it does not, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes God delivers people from the furnace, and sometimes God delivers people in the furnace. And I don't know where you are. I don't know what your furnace is. I don't know what it is right now that's causing you the most difficulty, the most pain, the most stress in your life. Our God is able to deliver you from that, but sometimes he delivers you in it. And if you're facing a furnace, one of the things that we tend to do with these types of things is we hold it in ourselves. We kind of just push it under and grit our teeth and try to get through. When really, one of the greatest things we can do is share it with someone. Share it with someone we know will pray for us. You know, it's funny, meeting people sometimes, I talk to people I was talking one time to a guy, and he told me he's an atheist, and I said, that's cool, let's talk, and we talked, and it was really a good time, and he was just talking about a medical condition he was struggling with, and I said, okay, I know you don't believe in God, but if it's okay with you, I'm going to pray for you, and, and, and I was, and if he said it's not okay for him, I was probably going to pray for him anyways, but I, I wanted him, I said, I just want to pray for you, and he was like, right now? I said, if you don't want me to do it right now, I won't, but I will, I will be praying for you if that's okay, and he said, Sure. I'll take any help I can get. And I said, oh, well, there's a crack in the armor right there, suddenly, kind of a little opening. And, and, and this is the thing. Oftentimes, as believers, we don't share and get people to pray for us. And I want to tell you something. If you're looking at something that's a furnace, if you're struggling with something that you feel like is just killing you, tell someone. Find someone who will pray for you. Find someone who will walk with you in this difficulty. 
This is so important. And if you don't know of someone, you know what? You can take one of those little white cards and you just write down what it is and hand it to me when you leave and I'll pray for you. But I want you to know my prayers don't, don't get through the roof any better than anyone else's prayers. I just want you to know that. Because I'm up here doesn't make my prayers more powerful. Years ago, somebody came to me at the door and said, I want you to pray about this. I said, oh, well, call the church too. Let us get it on the prayer list. You'll have a, a bunch of people praying. No, I just want you to pray. I'm like, oh, man, this is so messed up in so many ways. <laughs> I, I don't have a special, you know, there's no back door for me, right? Okay, just so you know that. But I will pray for you. You write it down, you give it to me. I, I promise you I'll pray. Because some of you I know, there are people in this room just because there's so many of us. You're saying, I can't handle this. This is too heavy for me. It's, it's just killing me. And I can't promise you you get the outcome you want, but I can promise you this, God will walk through you, with you through that furnace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, you know every situation, you know every difficulty, you know every fear, you know every challenge that each one of us is facing in this room. And Lord, you are able. And we need your power, we need your deliverance, we need your freedom and release. But Lord, we are willing to say, even if you do not answer this the way I want it, I will trust you, I will walk with you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters throughout the world who are having to exercise that kind of faith, even at this moment. And so, Lord, you know our hearts, and I just pray for each one of us that we would, as we sang earlier, we would seek you. Help us to let others be in and be a part of this and to seek you with us. We seek your favor. We seek your healing. We seek your righteousness and justice. We pray that you would forgive and strengthen and guide us in these difficult times. Lord, give us glimpses of your glory to encourage us along the way. And we thank you, Father, for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, three young men who took a stand, and it changed their lives forever. And it is changing lives even to this day. So we thank you for their faithfulness. Help us to be faithful also. 